0: Just the feel of the way Matthew wrote told us that this was written by a Jew. And very quickly, it was this feeling of, this is alive in my hands, this book, this is, this is either true or the greatest hoax ever.
1: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for him. Last week, we heard from Eric Ludi, a well-known Christian author and speaker who's taken some unpopular stances for Christ and who shared about what total submission to God looks like. Today, we're hearing from Joe Friedman, who was a devout Jew for most of his life, but after attending a Mormon ward, was so unsettled by their depiction of Jesus, decided to read a Christian Bible for the first time and had no idea what God was about to do. That story coming up right after a word from today's sponsor. I met with Joe Friedman in his house in Round Rock, Texas, and his wife Shoshana joined us as well. We're going to take a little while setting up today's story because the context of Joe's background plays an important role in understanding how God has worked in Joe's life. So for the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to hear a lot about Jewish beliefs and practices. But trust me, it's worth understanding before we dive into the story. Joe grew up in Philadelphia and was raised in a family that was proud of their ancestry and devoted to their Jewish way of life. I asked Joe to describe what that practically looked like.
0: Uh, We're at synagogue every Saturday. Father often would chant Torah on Saturday mornings. My father was a tutor for this for years, for, for people's bar and bat mitzvah. And then when I grew up that age, I also, he taught me how to chant Torah. And so through my teenage years also, and even sometimes in college, I would chant Torah on Saturday mornings. pre K, through high school, I was learning Hebrew. It was a required class. Wow. Learning Bible. Um, my particular school, I learned some Talmud, but not very much. I wasn't in a very orthodox school. We learned, you know, this is what you do on every holiday, and this is how you this is what you do surrounding a wedding, surrounding a funeral, surrounding a baby's birth, on top of our old normal studies and through science and math and English, or whatever else.
1: Were you a nominal Jew or a devout Jew?
0: I would describe it as somewhere in between. Yeah, I, I learned how to be Orthodox, but we didn't normally act Orthodox. I learned all the things you can and can't do on Saturdays. But many of them, we did. You're not supposed to use electricity on the Sabbath, on okay? Saturday, but we would watch TV and do whatever else on Saturday, unless, say, my father's parents are visiting, who were more observant than us. Yeah, we wouldn't do those things. Yeah, it was about appearances. Later on, when we were in, living in New Jersey at one point, we were in a close Orthodox community there, and we would be say watching TV on a Saturday, and someone would knock at the door, and we'd quick turn it off because maybe it's one of our neighbors. Is <laughs> was a rabbinical? They call it hete, which is a loophole, a workaround to actually not break the law, kind of sort of, if you do it it supposedly unintentionally, then it's not a sin. So you can, you know, raise your arms to yawn and go, oh, click, oh, my hit the light switch. Oh, what an accident.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In other words, there were a lot of rules, but you could get around a lot of them if you just knew the right loopholes. And as long as you had the right loopholes, you could keep God Mm -hmm. happy. At least, that's what you hope for.
0: God was very distant. I believed that God, or say at least that I believed that God existed, but He wasn't personal. He wasn't necessarily even active in my life. It was okay, God did these things in the Old Testament, and you hear these rules we need to follow, and one day I'll, I'll be in heaven. And there wasn't an ongoing relationship with god yeah there is so much talmud more than i ever learned more and i was at a sense of that i can never know all of that and make sure i'm doing all these things so i just kind of hope that i'm doing enough of these things and i'm good enough
2: yeah
1: yeah
0: but i didn't have a, a strong doctrine of hell either
1: yeah what what was your what was your concept of hell at that point
0: what I was taught in school was, there's a place It's more like Catholic idea of purgatory. You can go there up to a year, based on how badly you've sinned in your life. Unless you were a murderer, an idolater, or an adulterer, then it was permanent. But no idea of what happened there. And that even after a relative dies, and then for 11 months afterwards, the family members will say a special prayer every, every week, if not every day. 11 months, and somehow it's related to no one could be there 12 months, but I don't know that that prayer is supposed to have any kind of effect. saying It's just that's how long you mourn in that way.
1: If you listen closely, you heard Joe's mention of the Talmud. For those that aren't familiar, there are two components of Jewish law and theology, the Talmud and the Torah. I asked Joe to explain more.
0: Sure. So what Jews call it is written, Torah and oral Torah. Okay. Written is what we have written down in the Bible. And in the, in the Jewish Bible is the same, the same books as what Christians have. The entire Old Testament? Yes, uh, That's what I mean, yes. And a little bit different order, some of the books, but it's all the same books. Oral is expanding on what's written so we can apply that, but it's passed down oral tradition. It's like when the Bible says you can't make fire or you can't work, well, these are the 39 things that you can't do that must mean. I was just, don't do any work. What, 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 does that, what does that include? Well, Rabbi said these 39 things. Now they treat it on the same level or sometimes even functionally higher than a written Torah because it's, they, they say it was also given to Moses and passed down to the elders passed down through Joshua, through the, the judges and the kings, and the, the, eventually the Sanhedrin. But it, it really is traditions of men. Yeah. How we traditionally believe written words should be applied. And so it seems to me that maybe something that was started off with a good intention that eventually became so ingrained that it, it trumps written Torah, which is what Jesus says, right? You teach the traditions of men as doctrine, as we're quoting Isaiah. Yeah. One of the rules in Talmud is everything is is tradition long enough, it becomes law. Interesting. Yes.
1: I want to make sure we don't rush past something Joe just said. According to the Talmud, if something is tradition long enough, it eventually becomes law, God's law. Is Talmud and Torah are both of those seen as equivalent to god's law the bible is that is that are they seen the same or is torah seen as more um authoritative than talmud like explain that difference
0: i would say they would say that they're the same level sometimes maybe say that the the written torah is more but functionally how they operate is on the talmud interesting the talmud maybe another way you can understand it is case law but is it equal to legislative law is the way it's treated interesting
1: so, with the you know this description of a very you know detail, it sounds like there were a lot of details to following Talmud Torah. How did you th- conceive of yourself like did you ever have a moment where you thought about yourself and was like, man, I'm doing a pretty good job of doing this like did that ever cross your mind?
0: it would cross my mind I because I I when think of my life holistically, I would think of individual things I was doing like I went to synagogue today that was good. I changed the Torah today and something like that was good i didn't eat leaven on Passover. I did well. It was like those individual things, like the boxes to check. I did those things. I'm a good Jew because I did that. And not thinking about my life as a whole, that it was wicked. And I, I wouldn't think of the things. Well, I did that. Well, that, that was pretty wicked. It's more I think of it as amoral stuff. Yeah. I didn't think of myself as a bad person. Yeah. My dad told us. The way you know you're a good Jew is if your grandchildren are still Jewish, mm. haven't assimilated.
1: So, you, so you, had a, you had a good opinion of yourself then? Yes. What Joe just mentioned about avoiding assimilation into the culture so that you could remain a good Jew also played a key role in how Joe perceived Christianity.
0: There was a sense that Christians have persecuted Jews for a long time. People call themselves Christians anyway. There was a sense that we are a minority not that the Holocaust was perpetrated by Christians, but there was Holocaust was constantly in the thoughts in the Jewish culture of we are a persecuted minority, we always seem to be a bit wary. And you don't go into a Christian church, you don't talk to Christians about Jesus, you don't read the Christian Bible ever. It was very much isolationist. Yeah. and we can go in the world and we can go to school with Christians, say in college, we can work in the workplace with Christians, fine. But the religion aspect definitely very wary. Yeah. Also a very proud mindset of we're persecuted and we're small, but we're better than them.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hearing pieces of the gospel from my wife, I remember she telling me that the Christian doctrine of Jesus dying for your sins to save you from hell and and also to bring you to him. And saying to her, "Well, I didn't ask him to die for me. That this prideful thing. I can take it. Yeah. I can take hell. I can do." I'm a big boy, Take me on punishment.
1: As Joe just mentioned, retaining your Jewish identity was an important part of life. That identity extended to all parts of your life, including your social circles, family gatherings, what you ate, and more. But early on, Joe was aware that not everything added up. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer, because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18, and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a COMPELLED listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12 month money back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com.
0: Look back now and see that throughout my Jewish life, there are always things that rubbed me about it, things that didn't hold together or make sense. I have this memory of being in a synagogue on a Saturday morning and reading the Bible in front of me and reading Genesis 6 and seeing how God said that everyone was evil in their thoughts all the time and wondering what's, what's different now. In the Bible, I read sacrifices multiple times a day in the temple. We don't have that anymore now pray multiple times a day. Who said that was the same thing? Clearly, we can't go sacrifice. We don't have that temple anymore, so I guess we'll pray. But I never got a satisfying answer for that. One of the confusing things about my school growing up is I'm in this class, God created the world, and you go across the hall to a math class or a science class and get taught evolution. And I went with evolution. It's almost like religious beliefs and functional living were separated. I I did always think... Jesus was on some level somewhere the same level as any other religion. And if mine didn't hold fully hold together, well none did, so something like I didn't have a sense of looking elsewhere. I didn't desire to look elsewhere. Yeah. I didn't think there'd be anything else there would be another answer out there.
1: So like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we wanted to spend some time setting the context for how Joe approached his faith. He was proud to be Jewish. He observed the Talmud and Torah as much as he could, but didn't hesitate to use loopholes unless someone more observant was watching. He also had a few nagging thoughts about Judaism, but for the most part ignored those. So now we're going to dive into the actual story by fast forwarding through the first 30 years of Joe's life. He married Shoshana, another Jew who was even more devout than he was. In fact, she attended Jewish seminary and was very well versed in Jewish theology and practices. Shoshana was also familiar with Christianity and a few of its beliefs, more so than Joe. And really, when it came to most religious questions or decisions for their family, Shoshana was the leader. Together, they had three young children, and Joe had a great job in the technology sector. Then about nine years ago, Joe was given an offer to work in Israel. So they moved their whole family to Israel, and at first, they were excited.
0: It's it's a Jewish homeland. It's, It's very special to us. Oh, it's a mitzvah. For every step you take in Jerusalem, a mitzvah literally means commandment, and sometimes it's used in the context of these are the the commandments of the Lord. These are the mitzvot of the Lord. But often it's it's more used in the context of brownie points. <laughs> this is a mitzvah. It's a, you you did a mitzvah. You walked in Jerusalem. You helped the lady cross the street. You were nice to your brother. That was a mitzvah. That was a. Good thing you did there. That was a brownie point. A brownie point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So one of the brownie points is walking in Jerusalem. Each step that you took was like the equivalent of like helping a granny across the street.
0: Yeah. It was all like earning favor. Yeah. And extra points with God. And he he likes you a lot because you did that. Interesting. Living in America, there is a constant fear in the Jewish culture of assimilation. And to us, this word means you just become like the Gentile culture, you just kind of stop doing Jewish things and just become like a secular whatever person. And then that's one less Jew in the, in the community and in the world. And the statistics about the Jewish community shrinking, about half of Jews are intermarrying with non-Jews. And and so if you're living in America and you want to maintain a Jewish identity, you have to be doing Jewish things. Going to synagogue, following some rules, wearing a kippah, Hebrew word for head covering. One thing we liked about living in Israel was the fact that I live in Israel is enough of an identity maker. I don't need to be so observant. I'm a Jew. I'm in Israel. I'm, of course, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm a good Jew. I'm in Israel. But as we lived in Israel, now not observant, but feeling good about being Jews because we're in Israel, interacting with people, seeing how the Jewish religion influenced the politics and the culture, and just living daily life, the, the sheen wore off living there, and we lost our idealism. And we thought, there's nothing really special about this place. Nothing really special about being actively Jewish at, at all. People are just people, whether they're Jewish people or Arab people, who were actually often nicer than, than most people I know. Like, very hospitable. Um, so we just lost our our care, not only for Israel, but for the faith. We thought, okay, Jerusalem's the more whole in Tokyo.
1: What did you think would happen when you mention that to Shoshana, your wife?
0: It was mutual.
1: It was mutual, you could we, tell.
0: We were having the same th- talk about it. When I just said um, earlier, Jerusalem's not in Tokyo. That's a phrase that she said. Like we were having the same thoughts of this is, this is not working out, not financially, not spiritually, so to speak. Like, we, we're, we're tired of this.
1: Yeah. So you became disenchanted with Judaism by actually living in Israel and being surrounded 24-7 by Jews? Is that is that is that what I'm hearing?
0: Yes. By Jews, by law, laws we saw that were repressive. Because in Israeli government, it's a parliamentary government where you have to form coalitions of different parties in order to have a majority to make any laws passed. So to make any laws passed, you have to satisfy each party that's in your coalition. Though The two major parties that back and forth are labor and called Likud, um, they can't make a coalition without having this group called Shas in their, gar- in their coalition. And Shas is ultra-Orthodox and Shas always wants more and more rabbinical laws into the political, civil system. And so if, to satisfy them, there's often laws getting passed so that they can pass the laws they do want. And so there are things in Israel like if you're not both Jew, a man and woman, you can't actually get married in Israel the, say go to Cyprus get married and come back oh wow um, that and other things like that just made us feel more and more like this is just repressive or corrupt often we saw and we just disenchanted with Israel disenchanted with, with Judaism it just got secular and unspecial yeah and if it's when you lose the specialness you'll lose the reason to fight through the financial stress of it.
1: After being in Israel for a year and a half, the Freedmans had had enough. Instead of having the amazing experience they had expected, they had become fed up, not only with Israel, but even with the Jewish religion. They packed up their things and moved back to America.
0: So when we got back to the States, we were deliberately secular. We even started telling our kids that we didn't believe in God, which is, spiritual low point for us. Yeah. Of course, we were dead in our sense the whole time, but we were more dead at that point. Yeah. It was a low time for us.
1: They moved to Austin, Texas, and decided to begin homeschooling their kids for academic reasons. They wanted to make sure their children had a community of friends, but since they were no longer attending synagogue, they weren't sure where to start.
0: And the time, one of our neighbors, where we were, was Mormon. She said, oh, well... If you're worried about friends for your kids, why don't you come to our Mormon church, Mormon ward? Because everyone's really friendly there, and there's lots of children. you'll know, They'll have friends, you'll have know, friends. And we talked about it, and at first we thought, you know what? Absolutely not. That's to us everything having to do with Jesus Christ is all Christian stuff. And we don't want anything to do with that.
1: Even though that you had already sort of like mentally made the switch from you know, Judaism to now being secular, secular. It really showed us,
0: you know, actually we still do have a strong Jewish identity. We're Jews and we're not doing any of that stuff. Yeah. And even in the Jewish culture, it's hard to say the word Jesus. It's it's bitter on our tongue. Yeah. To say the name. There, there's a derogatory way it's it's often said. Yeah. But after maybe a month or two, we decide, you know what? We, we really should do this. We can just fake it, sit in the back. The kids can have friends and play with this so, with the mindset of, you know, our religions are not really real. Let's just, just go. Kind of dry and, and boring to me, the service and uncomfortable. Not only was I in a Christian, quote unquote, service, uh, building I was in, in service, I, I didn't like it. I was uptight and tense. And, and we sat in a Sunday school class of theirs and we heard their doctrine, heard what they really believe. And we knew that's wrong and that's offensive
1: like what were some of the things that you were hearing the
0: thing they said about god really lowered him his glory or brought him down toward our level and they raised up man towards god level and how awesome man is and So man went up god came down and the things they said about jesus didn't make sense to us either like we've heard things in the culture um my wife went to a public high school and heard things in her culture she knew we both knew that both academically and in in our hearts, like, that's not Jesus. I don't know fully, even barely know who Jesus is, but I know that's not Jesus. So the story we heard that, they, that just totally turned us off was they had this belief that before the world was created, God made this a big assembly of every person who was ever going to be created. Because they had this belief that, I guess that's all souls created from the beginning just waiting for their time to come into a body. Okay. If I'm messing that up, and woman can correct me. <laughs> but they were all there at this big council, and God asked them, how should he create the world? How should he create people? Sinful or sinless? Something like that. And Satan was there and said, you should make them perfect. And Jesus was there and said, my idea is, Make them good, but then they'll fall, and then I'll go say some of them. And God picked Jesus' idea. But the crazy thing about it, so many crazy things about it. First of all, that He was asking people's opinions. Yeah. That you were there too, and their, their doctrine, their theology. It could have been my idea that I was picked. Yeah. And on top of it all off, it makes Jesus a hypocrite because when He did come, He came perfect. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's going on here? So we left, we drove away, and we thought, we we're never doing that again. But who is Jesus? Because we know that wasn't him.
1: So was this, like, bothering you, like, their perception of who Jesus was?
0: Yes, it was bothering us. But I don't know what was really wrong. I don't know what the truth really is about Jesus. I just knew that wasn't right. So we drove from there to Barnes & Noble to buy a Christian Bible.
1: That, that very day.
0: At that moment, we drove from that Mormon church to Barnes & Noble, the Bible, Christian Bible. And we saw this poster on the end of the bookcase listing 20 plus different translations of the Bible. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of any of these, except for King James Version, that translation I'd heard of. So that's what we went with. Though I had heard a country song years ago I was talking about the red, red Letter. I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we go home, put the kids down in that evening, sit down on the couch in our living room, we say, what should we read to figure this out? And she said, we'll open on the first page of the Christian part. So open up to the Matthew, which is, as we learned, written with an audience in mind that has a Jewish background who would get the references and get the connections and, and get the, the allusions and the prophecies fulfilled and understand this must fulfill this prophecy and just prove to people who knew their, knew their stuff, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. This is the guy.
1: And that's the book that you guys decided to start reading it.
0: Yeah, it was page one of the New Testament. Yeah. So let's read that one. Start there. And we started reading it. And you've heard about the doctrine that with the Spirit, the scripture comes alive and it's real and active and it's not just dead pages of black and ink on it. That's what we experienced. We didn't have words for it then. But we started reading it, a bit hoping, a bit skeptical, a bit just curious, quickly moving from skepticism curiosity to oh huh this is this is penetrating this is feels real this is this be real i remember saying to my wife this is either true or the greatest hoax ever this is right this is real i I didn't expect that when i started reading it
1: you love christian testimonies otherwise you wouldn't be listening to compelled But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing. And their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle. And I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free US shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M. compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to Stories Uncompelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines they're actually doing investigative boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of the Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs, join me and thousands of other christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it just search for the world and everything in it in your podcast app or visit wng.org
0: and very quickly it was this feeling of this is like alive in my hands this is a book this is this is more scripture this is more bible This is real, self-validating to us by the Spirit and by things it was saying. Just the feel of the way Matthew wrote told us that this was written by a Jew who lived in a Jewish community, who understood what it was like to live in a Jewish community, what, what Jews are like. And it proved to me that I had this idea that Jews up to the time of the temple being destroyed, the Second Temple in 70 AD, were very biblical and then over the couple thousand years since then, more Talmud's been gone in and more traditions, and it's just kind of been ent- entropy, and it just now we're way we're, we're right off. But back then, when it, at the time the temple was destroyed, up to that point, we'd been relatively faithful to biblical commandments. And when I read this, I thought, oh, no. Jews were the same then as they are now, following rabbinical rules, all about appearances, trying to impress people, having rules that trumped scriptural scriptural rules scriptural commandments just, wow this is this is validate this is this is validating by the spirit validating the feel of the way it was written validating my cultural experience this this is bible it's, it's crazy it's like the very book you've ever read a secular book and then finding out years later there's a sequel yeah there's another one this is great yeah um the way Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, we found ourselves also rooting for Jesus. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, you tell him. Yeah. these are the things that we've always bothered us. It's like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. But we never had looked for truth elsewhere. But, okay, he sees the same things we see. Yeah. Um, and then, just when Jesus says, I don't think it's actually in Matthew, I think it's in, maybe it's in Mark, when he says, you tell your, you have to, on your father and mother, but you tell your children and, you know, whatever I would give to you, I've given to Korban, I've given to the Lord, but you're teaching doctrines that contradict Scripture. Yeah. Even often contradict their own rules. Yeah. Jesus says, "You put burdens on them they're too heavy to bear." but You don't lift the finger. That's what he's talking about. We get that. Yeah. We get that. Like, you have to do this, this, and this, and this. But I had this way of doing this, which means me, I don't have to do that myself. Yeah. And if, if you knew what I knew, you'd also be able to do that, but I'm more spiritual than you. Yeah. reading along and Jesus is confronting them on things that we saw too and bothered us. And we get to Matthew 13, there's the really famous parable of the sower in the field. There's the good soil and the bad soil and the, and the, the rocky soil and the, the thorns and what springs up quickly but has no root and dies. And he finishes, and the disciples, as usual, don't get it right away. And they ask him what that means. But they ask him also, why do you speak to them in parables? And he says, Well, to you, it's been given to understand. And I'm going to explain to you. But for them, he quotes Isaiah's, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, the hearts have grown wax. In the King James version, but if they would open their eyes and their ears, and, and they're, they're soften their hearts, and turn, I would heal them. Yeah. And that's just what I've been describing. That was it, that was my whole life. He just summarized right there in those few verses, quoting from Isaiah, all my life, don't look at, consider Jesus. Don't talk to Christians about Jesus. Don't read the Christian Bible. Don't go into a church building. Don't consider Jesus in your heart. Shut all that out. And in that moment, it it all came in. It was, that was when my dead heart cracked and life began.
1: At this point in the interview, Joe's wife Shoshana wanted to share a memory.
2: When you read that passage, you were in tears and you're like, I believe. And I was like, wait, I believe too. (laughs) And that's when we stopped and
0: prayed together for God to forgive our sins and we trusted in Christ.
1: The hand of God was so evident at this point. He found the Freedmans at the lowest point in their spiritual lives, directed them to a Christian Bible, led them to the gospel written specifically for Jews, and opened their eyes and their ears to believe.
0: At that point on, it was I was just on fire for finishing the book, and that uh, the new believer fire lasted for for weeks and weeks and weeks after that, just shaking. Yeah, and it's whenever and I. I feel, started to feel dull. I can look back to that that moment, and especially when I tell someone about it, it just gets me. I feel it again. That yeah. That's what Spirit was doing for, to us. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I can see you as I'm interviewing you right now. Like, I can see you, like, shaking your hands and, like, smiling, and, like, you're, you're glowing, you know?
0: Yes. Uh, we, we finished Matthew over the course of several nights, and still throughout, I had questions about what I was reading, some things I, I didn't understand, and didn't make sense. I would turn around and say, what, what does that mean? Or... How can that be true of that? But I was I was coming to life. I took my daughter camping just when we started. So I guess it must have been night there. We didn't read together. And I prayed to God there and I'll bag in back in the tent. You gotta be real, show me, reveal yourself to me. I I wanna I I wanna know. And then a few days later, Matthew 13. Wow. And then the next Sunday, and now I'm a believer, and Something like six months earlier, my daughter had gone to a sleepover, and she had taken a sleeping bag, and she had a pet. This is this story sounds apocryphal, but it's true. Okay. She had a stuffed animal lamb, and she had lost that lamb at that party. We couldn't find it. Uh huh. It just got okay. Sorry, you lost your your lamb. That's thanks. Sorry. That second Sunday, we went camping. My, just my daughter and me. I got into my sleeping bag at night. Now I'm just coming to faith, or still in the middle of Matthew, or just finished it. And I slipped into the sleeping bag, and there at the bottom of the bag is my daughter's lost lamb.
2: Yeah. Wow.
0: It sounds that sounds like like a reader's dyro story or something, but
2: the <laughs> symbolism is not lost.
0: <laughs> There's the lost lamb I found. Yeah. I found the lost lamb. For Joe and
1: Shoshana, there's no greater joy than knowing they've been found. But the journey ahead still has its share of difficulties, especially with family and friends. Joe's parents and siblings felt betrayed by Joe's conversion and significantly cut back their communication with his family. After Shoshana updated her Facebook account showing she was a Christian, she immediately was unfriended by close friends and people they had known for years, and even received threats. But despite those changes, Joe and his wife have embraced the unique situation that God has placed them in today.
0: The rejection part has helped talk to other believers whose families are not reacting well to their coming to faith, Muslim faith in in particular. I feel it too. I know what you're going through. even in Catholic faith sometimes. So that part has been helpful ministering to, to each other. The Jewish background part is really helpful as an evangelism tool to get to the gospel because using your testimony is a great way to share your your faith. It helps for me when talking to someone, trying to take, make that bridge from secular talk to spiritual talk. It's like, Oh, what languages do you speak? Or, Oh, how did you grow up? Somewhere in there, we're going to get to often my testimony. Yeah. And I get to bring it out and share. Also, it shows us that no one is too far. No one of any faith is too far from the gospel.
1: What advice would you give to our listeners who have Jewish friends and they want to witness to them, but they're not sure how to even go about it?
0: This is my favorite question that I get asked. Great. Because there's a simple answer and there's a longer, more drawn out answer. And the simple one is tell them the gospel. They need the truth and they need the spirit. Tell them the, the, the pure unedited gospel and allow the spirit to work or not in that that time. Yeah. Apologizing on behalf of people who have called themselves Christians over the centuries for what's been done to the Jews can be disarming. Pray, ask questions, things like asking questions about the temple, why they do what they do. why, Why do you go to synagogue? Why do you pray these prayers in synagogue? Why do you follow these observances? What are you hoping for? What are you hoping in? is what you're doing gonna get you there? Yeah. Judaism is very much organized about keeping an oath to the grindstone. Keep doing, keep doing, keep working with your hands. Keep, keep, don't, you don't need to look up, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing Jewish things and these rules and doing this and that and this and that in the community and this in, in the synagogue and do this in your family and and without a, a lifting your eyes to where are we going? What are we doing? Yeah, Why are we doing these things? Yeah. But the point is to, to love people and, and ask them these questions in a loving way and in a, a care about you kind of way.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Joe, I'm just really grateful that, you know, you agreed to come and share your story. I think it's really encouraging for me to hear this. I, I pray that it'll be very encouraging for those that listen as well.
0: Thank you, Paula. It was encouraging for me too.
1: Joe and Shoshana's testimony is a powerful reminder that God is not limited in how he can save people. The Freedmans have a unique journey. They were devout Jews that followed the law, but were ultimately burned out by the hypocrisy of the man-made rabbinical rules. But after the Freedmans abandoned their Jewish faith, God used a cult, Mormons no less, to cause them to open a Christian Bible for the first time. And even then, God guided them to the book of Matthew, the gospel written specifically for the Jews. And that is where God found his two lost lambs. It's important to note that no human ever witnessed to Joe and Shoshana. It was the Bible, the very words of God, that drew them. I'm reminded of Hebrews 4.12 which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Joe and Shoshana's story is just so incredibly reflective of that truth. A couple of days ago, Joe asked me to remind listeners wanting to evangelize Jewish friends that what Joe said about Judaism is from his own personal history and experience, and that every Jew is a unique person just like every Muslim, Mormon, Catholic, etc. So while cultural background information is helpful, in the end, everyone should be treated as an individual in personal evangelism. You can visit our website, compelledpodcast.com to find more stories about God working in people's lives just like this one. And if you look up this episode, you'll see a photograph that Joe sent me of when he was still a devout Jew. There's quite a difference to see how he looked before being saved and now. Also, we'll include a link to a book that Joe recommended called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman, which Joe highly recommended as an excellent resource for anyone pursuing evangelism. Again, you can find all of that at compelledpodcast. Com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Compelled Podcast and on Twitter at Compelled Show. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. That's one of the best ways to help other people find our show. If you enjoyed today's story and want to keep hearing more, here are a couple of ways you can help out. The first way is to join Compelled as a monthly member starting at $10 a month. As a monthly member of Compelled, you'll receive access to different perks, including behind the scenes recordings from our interviews, which is for sure the most popular perk for our members. When I actually sit down and interview guests, the actual recording is normally around two hours. And there are all kinds of stories and insights that we end up cutting out of the final episode because of time constraints. So if you really enjoyed listening to a guest like Joe today, then you can dive deeper and listen to all of our behind the scenes content when you become a monthly member. You can become a monthly member today by visiting compelledpodcast.com and clicking the link at the top that says become a member. The second way you can support Compelled is by sharing this episode with your friends. If you know someone who would be encouraged by Joe's story, then send it to them and consider sharing this episode on social media as well. It really makes a difference and helps spread the word about the show. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler. Find him online at zachfowlerimagery.com. Our logo was designed by Josiah Jost. View his work at sidedesign.com. Our website was created by Ben Phillips. Follow Ben on Instagram at ben.billups. Our media assistant is Frank Allegrea. Find him on Twitter at TheFrankAllegrea. Our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Ficchino. And our assistant producer is none other than my wonderful wife, Sarah Hastings. Our guest next Tuesday is Kathy Brace, who grew up in a dysfunctional and abusive home and made some terrible decisions leading to a downward spiral without a glimmer of hope. Until Christ appeared and offered her the only hope that she had. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from that story. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday.
0: So I'm 15, alone and scared out of my wits. I did not know what in the world was gonna happen to me. No explanation of anything. I woke up and I'm still in the delivery room and they told me it was a boy and that I uh, could not see him.
1: One last thing before I go, if you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.